Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we interview journalists and think tank types about topical global issues. And we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career. Earlier this month, the African Union held a summit in South Africa. Among the attendees was Omar al-Bashir, the president of Sudan. This was somewhat surprising because Bashir is wanted on charges of war crimes and genocide by the International Criminal Court, and South Africa, as a member of the ICC, is treaty-bound to arrest fugitives like Bashir. But South African authorities did not arrest him, so a local human rights group pressed their case in a South African court, which issued an injunction ordering Bashir to stay put in the country pending the resolution of the case. That's where things got weird. But needless to say, with the complicity of the South African government, Bashir was allowed to escape the country. He's now back in Sudan. On the line with me to discuss what exactly happened and what the consequences might be for the ICC and its relationship with African governments is Mark Kirsten. He's the creator of the excellent Justice in Conflict blog and a researcher focusing on the ICC. He was last on the show discussing the ICC's fledgling case against Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. This incident with Bashir made some headlines over the weekend, but I thought it deserved a deeper dive, and I knew Mark Kirsten would bring an excellent perspective into this conversation. I think you'll enjoy this episode. I know I did. As always, feel free to send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you. I love hearing your suggestions about people I should interview or topics I should cover. So here it is, my conversation with Mark Kirsten of the Justice in Conflict blog. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I remember it being something of a surprise that Bashir would even attend the African Union Summit in the first place, right? Yeah, I think his attendance basically caught everyone by surprise. It wasn't like there was this big lead up to even speculating as to whether he would show up or not. I, I mean, I certainly, that, I wasn't catching that on things like, you know, Twitter or the blogs that, you know, here's another African Union summit. Will Bashir show up? Will he not show up? It was really just this thing that exploded once there were suggestions that he, that a plane, a presidential plane, had landed. But even at that time, when when there was sightings of this, you know, this plane marked zero one or whatever it is um, that is allocated to the president, even then people weren't really sure whether this had actually happened or not. There was speculation. There were some statements that he was in the country, but no one really knew. I think really only. We only really knew the next day, even, uh, that he had ended up at the AU summit when 
he showed up for the group photo. Before that, there was really no photo evidence or, or strong evidence to suggest, yes, he was actually there. So it was kind of a bizarre lead up insofar as something that was so diplomatically important and relevant and which created such a massive firestorm was basically off everybody's radar mm -hmm. up until the point that he actually showed up and was photographed. Well, because I, I remember an incident a few years ago, or maybe just last year, in which um, Bashir had to leave a regional conference in Nigeria early over, you know, because of similar circumstances, right? Yeah. And so when he went to Kenya, he visited Kenya, I believe it was for the, it wasn't for an African Union summit, but what I, I believe it was for the inauguration of Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. And what happened there is that a Kenyan, very similarly to the situation in South Africa, is a Kenyan judge issued an order of arrest for Bashir based on the ICC warrants and based on Kenya's obligations to arrest Bashir. And so he left very qu quickly within, I think, 24 hours. I don't know. I don't, I don't recall exactly how long he was there. But it was a very similar in, uh, mm -hmm. incident, just one that, uh, th that, was, that occurred um, in an even shorter time frame. Mm -hmm. Actually, it, so it did happen in Nigeria. I, as you're answering this question, I looked it up. There was this incident in Nigeria a couple of years ago where right. very similar circumstances. He was invited to an AIDS conference, but I had to like flee. Yes. Uh, so it has happened a couple of times. Yeah. Those, these three are now the biggest, kind of the most problematic cases, as well as his visit. I believe he visited the Democratic Republic of Congo because all four of those states are ICC member states. Whereas when he goes to uh, Addis Ababa for the AU conferences, there's really no significant issue or there's less of an issue. Because, because Ethiopia is not a member state. Yeah, there's still some residual issues because it's a UN Security Council referral and therefore is supposed to bind all, all states of the world and not just member states of the International Criminal Court. But there seems to be an additional kind of um, controversy, of course, when the, member, when the state is itself a signatory of the court, like in the case of South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, and the DRC. So he is in South Africa... What happens next? Well, basically what happened was, so he arrived and one, almost immediately um, a private organization, a private uh, human rights law organization uh, in South Africa filed an, um, basically an emergency motion or a motion with a local court, a local high court in Pretoria, um, to request that it issue some kind of order for Bashir to stay in the country or potentially to arrest him. Now, the court then responded that um, that with essentially this emergency order, which required Omar al-Bashir to stay within the country, uh, not necessarily that he be arrested, but that he stay within the country until it could get, go through the motions and hear the legal arguments as to whether... South Africa, as a state, had an obligation to arrest Omar al-Bashir. Now, that gave Bashir and South African authorities a window of just over 24 hours or so, I believe. And during that period of time, a couple of interesting things happened. So his plane, Omar al-Bashir's plane, that is, was, mo was moved from a civilian airport to a military airport, apparently, because that creates some legal loopholes as to whether military... Um, 
officials in the country have an obligation to arrest, like, say, for example, immigration officials. The, the hearings were being held on, uh, on Sunday to discuss whether or not Bashir should be arrested. His lawyer, uh, the, not his lawyers, but the lawyers of, the, uh, of South Africa made certain ridiculous claims like, oh, we don't know if he's still in the country. And maybe he isn't in the country, or if he is in the country, maybe he's just shopping, things like that. And it kind of it went on and on and on until finally uh, it became clear, it was reported that Bashir had actually escaped the country, had left the country in defiance of this order uh, to stay within the country. The judge then ruled that, uh, that South Africa did in fact have an, an obligation under its domestic laws to arrest Omar al-Bashir. And within, a, I, think the, I think, the very next thing that the government lawyers, the South African government lawyers said is, oh, yes, but now we can confirm that he's af- actually mm-hmm. left the country. So it was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of a circus. I think, I think it is, I, and I do certainly hope that in time we'll, we'll get a better sense of exactly what happened because it certainly smells fishy and it certainly smells uh, like the kind of situation where uh, where the government was quite clearly uh, complicit in his uh, in, in Omar Bashir's ability not only to defy the ICC arrest warrant, but to, de- to defy the order of a court within South Africa that mm. he not leave the country. And those are two separate things, um, but they're both important. And so in one very short period of time, South Africa earned itself the distinction of having violated international and domestic law. Will there be any repercussions under domestic law for South African officials having defied this court order? That's a really good question. I don't know. My, it's hard to... It's hard to say right now because we don't know who is actually responsible. And it's not clear, at least to me, what type of actions that court can take against the state itself for having, uh, for having allowed or brought into, into effect the conditions that allowed uh, Omar al-Bashir to actually flee the country. So I don't know what exactly they, they, they will be able to do. Uh, but whatever they are able to do will clearly depend on uh, on what facts emerge in the next couple of days and weeks. Uh, and in that and in that regard, I, I think it's really important that investigators uh, and lawyers, as well as the media in South Africa, really push the government hard on this question of you know how did this happen? Why did this happen? Uh, you can't simply say that you didn't know, or we we thought he might actually be shopping. You were hosting him in a government event, you had minders, et cetera, and so on and so forth, and really put pressure to kind of piece together this story in some of the more controversial, nefarious... Yeah, I mean, because South Africa happened. has the strongest judicial <laughs> system in the region by far, and yet um, this this sort of hoodwink occurred nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is uh, now a source of deep embarrassment for South Africa, and it's getting a lot of uh, re- severe attention in terms of, uh, from human rights groups, but also obviously from uh, f- from other other states. But that, in its own right, is fascinating. That South Africa, uh, presumably, if they were involved and if they are in co- if they are complicit, and clearly they are in allowing, first of all, Bashir to be hosted in South Africa in defiance of their arrest warrant, and then secondly, not 
preventing him from leaving uh, the country in defiance of the domestic court order, is that they were willing to basically take all of this negative publicity, all of this scrutiny, all of the repercussions that we'll see now, because I guess in their cost-benefit analysis, they still think hosting Omar al-Bashir is better for them politically, and we still don't know exactly why it would be better, but they made that cost-benefit analysis, presumably, and came out with the idea that, you know, we'll take all of this flack, but it, we'd still prefer to host Omar al-Bashir and to, prevent, uh, and to allow him to flee the country. And that, that, again, is something, you know, we still need to, uh, to figure out and to, to ask the government, is, you know, how did you make this decision? Why was it so... Why did you think it was worthwhile to do all of these things in defiance of domestic and international law um, rather than act on your obligations? And we don't know exactly what those, those calculations were, but there's certainly, they were there. So one thing that seems increasingly clear, though, is that, you know, whatever the calculations were, the result for the International Criminal Court as an institution was seemingly pretty horrendous. I mean, you have a member state, a signatory to the Rome Statute, uh, not only not arresting a uh, wanted fugitive, but letting that fugitive escape. Uh, you know, what does this say about the future? Or does this incident say anything profound to you about the credibility of the International Criminal Court and its ability to, you know, pursue crimes against other heads of state in the future? Well, it's obviously not a good day for the ICC when your top fugitive. And I really think Omar al-Bashir is the top fugitive, if you recall that. He's the only ICC, uh, he's the only individual ever to be charged with all three crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. And in fact, he's the only individual to be charged with genocide ever. So it's, a, it's obviously not a good day or a good weekend or a good period of time for the ICC when your top fugitive goes to a rather influential and powerful member state. And there are very few uh, repercussions, at least insofar as enforcing the arrest warrants and surrendering to the ICC. So that's obvious. But I think at the same time, we really need to temper this kind of rhetoric or these frames in which we see the ICC and international law more broadly, which suggests that, you know, either people like this have to be surrendered immediately, therefore international criminal law and the ICC works well, or when he isn't, then the ICC is in crisis and it's broken and it, it's facing this massive um, credibility crisis or whatever it may be. I think there are certain things within this case uh, of Omar al-Bashir's visit to South Africa that might be, you know, these silver linings for the ICC. First of all, it, it's really important and meaningful that despite the fact that uh, very powerful and influential government allowed him to visit and didn't prevent him from leaving, their judiciary essentially took the right steps or took steps that are in accordance with international criminal law and, and, uh, mm -hmm. and the state's obligations to the, to the ICC. Also, the kind of furor that we've seen on Twitter or uh, in the media as, you know, th that this is a terrible thing and the endorsements from things like the New York Times and the Guardian and and a whole host of other newspapers, not only outside in the West, but in Africa itself, are also indications that, you know, th that there is some kind of consensus, general consensus, obviously with exceptions, that this should not have happened and it shouldn't happen in the future. That court order that was issued also set a precedent to say that, you know what, 
Omar al-Bashir, if he ever comes back to South Africa, uh, has to face charges not only at the ICC, but being in contempt of court for having left South Africa. So the likelihood of this ever repeating again, I think, is very unlikely. And the other thing is that South African lawyers did try to... to they didn't say the ICC's arrest warrant didn't matter. They didn't say the ICC didn't matter. They didn't kind of disregard the court's existence and say, you know what, we're making political decisions here and, you know, we just don't care what the ICC says or what it wants us to do or whatever it may be. Instead, they tried to make legal arguments around the fact that they have, in particular, legal obligations to the African Union and its various resolutions pertaining to not cooperating with the ICC on the Bashir case, uh, with and, and they claim that those those obligations were in tension uh, with their obligations to the ICC. And I think there is something to be said that when a state uh, interprets or even violates to a certain degree a law, but references those obligations within that law, it acts to actually strengthen those obligations because it's inherently admitting that yes, those obligations exist. We just are interpreting the precise reality of those obligations in a slightly different way. So I so think there's silver yeah. linings. What happened politically to, to bring this about? I mean, a few years ago, it would seem impossible or just highly unlikely that Bashir would even want to go to South Africa because it would be almost a certainty that he would be arrested upon arrival. What, what happened in, over the last few years that has made African governments or many African governments so hostile to the ICC? Well, that's a great question, and I think it's an extremely complex question that often gets oversimplified by claims, for example, uh, from African leaders themselves that the ICC is simply it's kind of neo-colonialist or, ra uh, or racist kind of institution. I don't think that's correct, right? I think if we look at the record, it's clear that to that to a much larger uh, degree, the ICC has actually helped to elevate and legitimate. African heads of states than it has to undermine them. However, African, uh, many African leaders do have serious issues with the idea of heads of states being targeted uh, or have developed serious issues with heads of states being targeted by the ICC. In Bashir's case, what is interesting is that he kind of f uh, did this free ride on the coattails of Uhuru Kenyatta. So, um, the president when, of Kenya. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The president of exactly. So the president of Kenya. So to kind of expand on that, what I mean is when when Omar al Bashir was indicted for war crimes and crimes against humanity, and later for genocide, there was some tension on the amongst African leaders towards the ICC. But it was primarily those leaders that. Um, that already that that basically had chosen to not to sign onto the Rome Statute and that were outside of the the ICC system and were already critical of the court. And the reason for that is is because a lot of African states actually believe that Omar al Bashir should face um, charges or should face justice or should actually face trial for the allegations that he faces for his responsibility for the atrocities in Darfur. Now, what? really kicked things off in terms of the um, this kind of poisoned relationship between the ICC and, Af and many African states, although it's important to say not all African states, but many African states, 
um, was the indictment of Uhuru Kenyatta, um, or the summons against, the case against Uhuru Kenyatta. He wasn't indicted, he was summoned, right? So in that instance, I think African leaders simply made a political calculus, and they don't dislike Uhuru Kenyatta, but when he became president, they made some kind of political calculus that they wanted to defend him, and they wanted to be on his side in trying to get his case removed from the ICC. Is it that, that Kenyatta, yeah. you know, is the difference that, you know, Kenyatta is not accused of genocide. He's accused of just sort of orchestrating the mass killing of a lot of people in an election campaign, which is not something dissimilar to how a lot of other African heads of states like to, you know, get elected to power. It may be, it may be that that's part of it, but I think the other, the bigger part of it is simply that Kenya is a regional powerhouse economically and politically. And so when he became president, uh, what you saw is basically a lot of African heads of states lining up to kind of cozy up next to him. And one of the ways that they could show that they they could show allegiance with Uhuru Kenyatta is to side with this idea that the African Union should try to get the case against him collapsed. And so that really rose to prominence. And that's really when we started to hear these very sharp claims, not just neo-colonial claims, but again, this race hunting uh, allegations and this racist court and so on and so forth. And Bashir really benefited from that issue uh, becoming kind of spreading across the continent and through the African Union in a much more deep and much more kind of pervasive way. And so I think he's kind of captured that um, more recently and been able, therefore, to kind of travel uh, more freely to African Union uh, member states that are also member states of the ICC. Now, at the same time, I do think, uh, it would, well, I should just say, I don't know, and I don't think anybody's really clarified this, is why, South Af why he was able to do it in South Africa. Again, we need to know what kind of political calculus South Africa uh, made and why it decided that this was worthwhile. Why was it worthwhile to host Omar al-Bashir now in defiance of <clears throat> international and again domestic law? And that we don't know. And I imagine that that's, a, that's the kind of conversation um, and the kind of political negotiation that takes quite a lot of time uh, to kind of hammer out between Sudan and South Africa. And again, we just don't know what the content of those negotiations are and hopefully sometime at some at some point we will because it really matters because i think right now people are still you know if we look at the newspapers and the media people are genuinely still flabbergasted as to why this happened in the first place so before i let you go though i think it is worthwhile to mention the case of laurel bagbo the former head of state the former president of cote d'ivoire and currently the only former ex-head of state sitting in the dock in The Hague. And his trial starts next month, I believe. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think... So they, they're not exactly... I, yeah. so, so they're one for three at this point, batting about 33% the ICC is in terms of uh, heads of state. <laughs> well, I think there's... Not bad in baseball. Not so not, good for international yeah, justice. Yeah, hitting 333, exactly. Hitting 333, not too bad. Uh, maybe it can get them all on base and then one more and hit a grand slam or something. Um, but I think there is a distinction to be made, and it is an important one, was that uh, Laurent Bagbo was surrendered to the ICC after he was displaced as head of state. That being said, I think it's really, uh, it is really, uh, it, it is an important case because 
I can't think of a single African Union member state that complained when he was surrendered, even though he was surrendered after the fact. I can't think of a single one that, that complained about it, right? So, again, this just shows the diversity of perspectives and that this kind of anti-ICC position uh, within the continent and certainly amongst the leaders of the continent isn't universal and it isn't, uh, it isn't always coherent, um, and it certainly isn't consistent across across time. And here, I think we should also mention the fact that many African, I think it's five African states were on the United Nations Security Council when Libya was referred to the ICC. And I think it would be uh, disingenuous of them and almost disrespectful of any outside observer to assume that those states did not know that in allowing the ICC to investigate uh, Libya, that Muammar Gaddafi as the head of state would be targeted by the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. So again, I think there are some kind of moving pieces here. There's a lot of rhetoric uh, and the rhetoric doesn't usually match up with reality, which is something that you and I and a lot of observers of international relations and international justice are used to. Um, but hopefully, you know, hopefully these things like a, like Bashir's visit instigate the kind of attention analysis that mm -hmm. and the questions that bring this out a little bit more and clarify the relationship and cut, cut through I, the haze. I guess to me, the Bagbo case sort of illustrates one way in which Bashir may finally end up in court. If he's, you know, if he ever makes it to the ICC, my guess is chances it will be because he's no longer head of state of Sudan. There's been some sort of political upheaval there and he's spirited away. I mean, that to me seems the most likely route, uh, given the fact that he's probably likely to seriously curtail his international travel following this most latest incident. Yeah, I think that's probably most likely. I think we need to be sensitive as to what that means. Oftentimes, proponents of the ICC talk about, you know, marginalization and that they hope that Omar, someone like Omar al-Bashir would be replaced and then surrendered by his, um, by those who took over to the International Criminal Court and that would show the court was working and was functioning. Uh, I think we need to be careful in, in, in assessing that and be very um, sensitive or at least talk to those kinds of people who really know the facts on the ground in Sudan because there's an assumption in there that might may or may not be faulty but it's certainly an assumption that whoever takes over would somehow necessarily uh, be better. Um, that doesn't mean that Omar al-Bashir shouldn't end up at the ICC, it just means that when you take somebody out of a situation like that we need to think through all, some of the mm -hmm. consequences and be sure that the end result uh, is a good result for the people who inevitably get ignored and neglected the most in all of these conversations. Um, and and I, you know, I'm a, a, as much at fault of this as anybody else, which is the, the, the hundreds of thousands of, of victims and survivors who are living day to day um, in pretty awful conditions and have been for almost, you know, 15 years now in Darfur. Thank you so much for your time. This was, this was helpful and interesting. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mark Kirsten for his time. The ICC, I find tremendously interesting pretty much always, but I do think that the arc of history bends towards justice and Bashir will get his day in court. All right. See you next time. Bye.